the the Bible. We're on um, we're on uh, Titus tonight. Uh, three chapters in it, and then there's one chapter in Philemon. And even to be a small small books, there's a good bit in each of these books. So uh, what we've been doing is we kind of go through and look at. Um, kind of break down the book by chapter, uh, um, depending on the size of the book. Sometimes you have to combine chapters, but we break down the book by chapter, and then we look at highlights of, uh, of uh, the book. And uh, so, of course, the bigger books like the Old Testament books and the Gospel accounts, we had to squeeze a lot in one night to get through it. But Titus has uh, three chapters, and let's look through it tonight. Um, there's a theme or a, or a uh, key um, summary of each book that's usually in a word a phrase or just a couple words and for Titus is the words the two words good works and we'll get to that and find out in the book of Titus what that's about there are only three chapters in the little book of Titus and it is um, it was written about 62 to 65 AD from what we know uh, Paul's third missionary journey that says to 66 AD, and that might have been might be a little late actually, because Paul, from what we know, he died about 66, 67 AD. He was martyred, of course, for his faith. So, um, in other words, this one was written probably between the time that First Timothy was written and Second Timothy was written, because Second Timothy we looked at last week, and as you remember, that was the last book he wrote before he was martyred for his faith. So, Titus was probably somewhere between those two. Like Timothy, Titus was also a pastor. And so there's a great deal in there to Titus being a pastor, but also that has to do with the, the church where he pastored and had to do with, um, with uh, just, you know, uh, us as Christians in general. So it's very uh, simple outline if you want to um, uh, try, if you, if you make any notes on these, uh, on these studies. Chapter one is basically the organization of the local church, including um, in chapter one, the, um, the requirements for a pastor. Now, we looked a little bit at that in 1 Timothy, and also um, 1 Timothy also has uh, not only pastors but deacons as well. But in Titus, we also see the, um, the uh, requirements for uh, a pastor. And so the organization of the local church is found in chapter 1. We'll come back to that in just a minute. The equipping of the local church in chapter 2, it talks about teaching and training people in the Word and then the occupation of the local church, that is being what a church should be, serving the Lord. So basically that's the breakdown of, um, of the three-chapter book of Titus, just taking each chapter and an overview in each chapter. So let's take the scenic route. This is a modern-day picture of the island called Crete. So pick up with me in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I'll read uh, to us down to verse number um, verse 5. Um, because Crete is mentioned. Crete is actually an island that's, uh, is south, I'll show you a map in a moment, it's south of Greece. It's located off of, um, off of Greece in um, uh, the region there, same region there right below it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Verse 3, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus, my own son after the common faith. That's very similar to um, 
what he wrote about Timothy, of course, it's not his son, his biological son. It's his son after the faith. And we'll come back to that in a moment and look a little bit about Titus's background. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 5, for this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Hold your place and go with me back over to uh, 1 Timothy, if you will. Two books to your left. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. So he, he tells him to, order, uh, to uh, ordain elders. And he says in every city. We're going to come back to Crete in just a moment. But pick up at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Starting at verse one, and in these next verses, he's also talking about pastors, uh, requirements for a pastor. But look at verse one. This is a true saying: If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. Verse two: A bishop must be blameless, so forth, so on. Over the next several verses. So in First Timothy three, he uses the word bishop. In Titus chapter one, he uses the word elder. But both of those we see as we study the New Testament are both the same title for a pastor. So today we use the word pastor. Um, in uh, the book of Philippians, Paul writes, uh, to, in, in, uh, his, in the beginning of Philippians, he writes to the pastors and deacons. He mentions them. So a pastor is a title we use today. The word elder is also a title um, for a pastor, and so is bishop. But most of the time you see this pastor, um, and Paul uses that word elder uh, in more places than one. But again, it's all has to do with a pastor. So uh, he's called a bishop in 1 Timothy 3. He's called an elder here. But these are requirements for a pastor. This is what he lists in here. We'll come back to those in just a moment. But there it says in uh, chapter 1 verse 5, to ordain elders in every city of Crete, the, the island Crete. So this is a modern day and you see all the cars there, of course, you can tell it's modern day. That's not the whole island, but that's part of it. Um, if it was, it'd be a very small island to have a church, wouldn't it? Um, it's, it's, all, um, it's all part of that island. You'll see in just a moment a, a little bit, uh, it's, a, it's a drawn picture, but you'll see a picture where it's a little bit bigger than that. So that's probably the region they, they had is probably that Clauda down there on the bottom left. But Crete, this comes from BibleStudy.org site. They have some good maps on there. You see some of the, the titles or the, excuse me, the cities there in Crete. And he tells him to ordain elders, pastors in all those cities. And so uh, Fair Havens actually is mentioned over in the book of uh, Acts. Um, it's mentioned, I, th I may have that reference in here somewhere. I, th I think I might have it a little bit later. But anyway, he, he tells him to uh, ordain pastors in every city. Go throughout that little island of Crete and ordain pastors. Now, you think about it, and um, that's an island. That's not even in Greece. But apparently, uh, on Paul's missionary journey, he was in Crete, and, and the Bible mentions that. We'll look at some references. So apparently, Paul led some folks to the Lord there in Crete. And uh, Titus uh, who was there in Crete, was a pastor, and he was to ordain other pastors. So you think about it, um, this would be, you know, going to some island. Uh, you think about, you know, back in that day, there wasn't mass transportation. They had ships, of course, boats, but there, was, there weren't airplanes. Uh, you know, they didn't have mass transportation to get you quickly in and out. So everybody there that lived there was pretty much either a native of the, of the area or there's somebody that moved there from somewhere else, maybe for trade, 
maybe, you know, where ships stop or whatever. So basically they would be kind of limited with who they would have to choose as pastors. They had to be believers, of course, had to be Christians, but he would give, you know, he gave them a list of what they were to, uh, uh, the requirements here in Titus when they looked for pastors. And so um, in that day, in that Greek culture which they lived, probably not many of them knew very much Old Testament. They probably didn't hardly know any of the Old Testament law. So they were, the ones that were there were probably young believers. They were probably, you know, very new believers. And so uh, he tells them to ordain pastors. So that's the kind of the highlight of chapter 1. We'll take a moment and look at that. Look at chapter 1. We looked at, this, at verse 5 just a moment ago. Um, we talked about Crete and the elders. Pick up verse 6 down to 11. If any be blameless. Now that's not sinless, of course, because no one's sinless. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now in that culture, especially in that day in Greek culture, um, there were those who had, you know, they, they practiced polygamy. And so uh, he told them to be the husband of one wife and uh, that they had to be husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. They should be able to, to rule their house well. Uh, verse 7, for a bishop. See, now he changes it from elder to bishop, but they're both the same title for a pastor. A bishop must be blameless, the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. That's another word for money, not someone that's just in it for money. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate. So uh, for a pastor, um, th- those, are, those are requirements. They were to be the husband one wife and be able to rule their home, their children, their home well. Um, they were to be able to not only that, but through the Holy Spirit, rule themselves, not to be self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not, in other words, someone, not someone that starts, you know, gets into fights, starts fights, brawls, not given to filthy lucre, desire for money, but on the, on the other, the positive side, one that loves hospitality, one that, you know, welcomed people, one that, that, you know, as a pastor, you have to deal with people. You have to deal with people one-on-one sometimes, and not just in a group setting. Um, you visit them in the hospital, things like that that they need um, and, their, and their needs, not just spiritual, but physical, which they go together sometimes, of course. The steward of God, uh, he's to, you know, to be one that, that is um, one that, that um, is a steward of the truth God gives to be able to dispense it and to give it to God's people. God gives him to, what to teach and preach and he gives that to the people. Uh, not given to wine, no, not a drinker, not given filthy lucre, hospitality, lover of good men, Sober, just, holy, and temperate. So there's a list, and it's very similar to First uh, Timothy three, where he gives, um, where he gives to Timothy. Paul gives to Timothy um, the requirements for a pastor. Also, chapter two. This is the equipping of the local church, and Paul tells uh, Titus, who is a pastor, Titus. This is what I want, how I want you to do this. So he's to look out among Crete and all the cities there, find men that fit that description and, um, you know, they're called to pastor, ordain them, set them aside for the special, uh, uh, special purpose, special uh, ministry of pastoring to people in their town. So again, remember back in that day, you know, they didn't have the, the church buildings didn't come till you know, really a couple of centuries later. So they met in houses, they met wherever. And so um, he told, he told him, find out uh, men that would be pastors, ordain them. Now, he takes it a little further, the next step in equipping the local church together. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. 
But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now, when it uses that word become, this is another word in the English language we use in more ways than one. We looked at one, uh, I think last week we talked about 2 Timothy. Um, trying to think of the example. But anyway, we used, um, we used another one recently uh, where you see a word that can mean more than one thing, and it depends on the context, where it's written, what it's, what it's talking about. Um, the things which become sound doctrine. You don't hear the word used quite this much any, as much anymore, but uh, sometimes uh, you see somebody wearing a hat or something. So that's very becoming of you. That's very fitting. That's, it fits you. It looks great on you. And so he says, speak the things which become sound doctrine, things that um, you know, st- keep your teaching, your preaching, uh, Titus, with what you know is sound doctrine, sound in the scripture. Stay, stay with the truth. Don't get off of the truth. Stay with it. Now, he begins in verse 2 down to verse 8 telling how we can pass on to the next generation. We don't have time to go into this tonight. This would take a message to go into this and really uh, break this down. But he goes in the next several verses, he talks about this is how you pass down to the next generation. And we've talked about this. Sharon and I have talked about this. And, and you know, we talk about when it comes to children's ministry, teen ministry. This is something that's needed today so much, so desperately in every church. Uh, we need to know to, in churches to be able to to understand the importance of discipling, of teaching, of passing truth on to that next generation, passing the baton of faith and doctrine to that next generation. And he says here, this is a very practical, personal way to do it. Verse 2, that the aged men be sober. That's also what he listed for pastors, to be a, a man that's sober. Now, that doesn't mean that they, you just find them when they're not on the bottle. That means they're there to be you know, serious all the time, um, not to the point where they can't joke around, but you know they're serious with what they do. Grave, temperate, sound in faith, and there it goes back to what he talks about sound doctrine. In charity, that is, you know, love in action, in patience. Then he mentions the women. Then after that, he goes back to talking uh, to the men a little bit after that. But look at verse 3. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. We need to stop there. Notice the spelling. That is T-O, not T-O-O. There's a world of difference in one little letter. Um, when somebody's had T-O-O much wine, they may be a little tipsy. What he's saying there in T-O much, not given too much wine. When you hear somebody say something about um, maybe they have a... Um, Maybe they, when they talk a lot, they'll overstate stuff. They'll say it in big, broad, or they'll, they'll make, they'll, they'll balloon it out. You know, they'll kind of put, make the story bigger than what it really is. And, and so we'll say they're given to overstatement, right? Well, he's saying that the aged women not to be given to wine. They're, that's not to be an addiction for them, not given to wine. Uh, and they mention, uh, or to much wine. And for pastors, it says not given to wine. There's no much to it, not given to wine. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. So he's talking about the aged women here. And what are they to do? Verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. You know, there's, I think I've mentioned this before. There's nowhere in the scripture, God commands a, a husband to love his wife, but there's nowhere in the scripture where a wife is commanded to love her husband. That's an odd thing. We talked about that in Ephesians, in fact, when we were in Ephesians uh, several weeks back. But here, the closest thing to it is it says the aged women, the older women, are to teach the younger women to love their husbands 
and to love their children. Verse 5, to be discreet. That's a word that's left our vocabulary these days. People don't even think about, let alone use that word anymore. You, I mean, I don't know if, if, it's, if, if you want to blame it on television or something. That might be part of it, but I don't think it's all of it. I mean, you can't turn on a show or a movie anymore without them just lacing it with profanity that make us, used to make a sailor blush. Um, it just lacing with profanity. Um, there are words that, you know, um, that, that people use now. I'm thinking of a couple of them that people use now. I, I, you wouldn't say that when I was in school. You'd end up in the principal's office. I mean, that's just the way it is. But now they just throw them around all the time. Discreet. Um, it's more than just your language. It's, it's in behavior, too, to be discreet. Discreet means that you, you watch your behavior that it will not you know, be a downfall to somebody else. That's really what that means. But it also means in word, not just in the things we do. Chaste. Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Verse 6, young men. Now he's going back. He talked to the men first, then he talked to the women and told the women how to train and help the younger women. Now he goes back for the men to tell them about young men. Verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. That's our phrase for this book, and we'll come back to that. What are good works, and what is it about for, for the believer? Good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So uh, just as the older women are to, to be teachers not only in word but in action, an example to the younger women, so are men to be the same for younger men. All right, verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. It's interesting how much in here has to do with the words that we say. That we say. And verse 8, he really, um, he really emphasized that there. All right, let's move on to chapter 3 and look a little bit of it. The occupation of the local church. So, this is, we said the theme of it is good works. What, what are good works for the believer? We know good works cannot save us. The Bible makes that very clear. Uh, in fact, we'll come back to this in just a moment in, in uh, verse um, 5 in just a moment. But the Bible says, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 tell us that we're not saved by works. We can't be saved by works. So good works before we're saved, we're saved they don't mean anything. But after they say that we're saved, we should do a whole bunch of them. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 that says that we're saved by grace through faith, the very next verse, Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works to do good works after we're saved. So let's look at this. Um, Titus talks about this in several places in chapter 3 and then also back in chapter 2, verse 7, where it says to be a pattern of good works. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Slip down to verse number 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. And there's a period, but there's one more sentence. Look what it says. These things are good and profitable unto men. So the good works we do are to obey our Savior, to do what He would have us to do. They're also, we know that He will reward us for the good works we do. But it goes a step beyond that. 
Because they're not only for us, for rewards, and us for obedience to the Lord. But it says there, these things are good and profitable unto men. The work, good works that we do, they're good for others. They help others. That's why in the book of James, chapter 2, James says for the believer, the good works, they, they don't justify us before God. Only faith does that. Faith justifies us before, before God. But good works justify us before believers. Because James 2 says, for the believer, um, you know, what good is it if my brother or sister need, is in need and I don't help them? Um, our good works are done to help others uh, because we're saved, to help others, whether it's another believer or someone that's not a believer, we do it to help others. It says, these things are good and profitable unto men. Uh, skip down to verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. So doing good works produces fruit in the life of a believer. So we see how even, even though it's only mentioned four times in those two chapters, that's uh, one of the themes that Titus is, is uh, moving toward when he talks about good works uh, in, in those three chapters. All right, let's move on and look at a few. Okay, so we know Titus was a pastor, and he lived on the Greek Isle of Crete. We already looked at this, so these are the references if you would like to, to look at those. But for time's sake tonight, we're probably just going to, uh, we're probably just going to, uh, st uh, to, to leave it with that. Um, what time we got here? Somebody have a watch on what time we got? I didn't bring my... Okay, we got, we got a little time. So uh, these, these verses in Acts mention Crete. Let's go over there real quick. Thank you. Um, let's go over there real quick. Acts 27, a couple of places there. This is where Paul is, is, is uh, sailing, and he's, he's uh, on a... Um, actually, journey to, getting ready for his journey to Rome. 27, verse 7 and 8. Then we had sailed, and when we had sailed slowly many days, and were scarce come over against this pronounced Nidus, uh, the wind not suffering us, we went. Uh, we sailed under Crete against Salome. Uh, um, Salmone. We saw that um, island of Crete on that map, and then below it was that little bitty small island. That's what he's talking about. Verse eight, and hardly passing it, came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, wherein too was the city of Lacia. So let me back that up a little bit. We'll get to it. Go back to that. There we go. You see um, that Salmone over there on the far eastern part of it. Then there's Fair Havens down there. And then that uh, Clarda's down there on the, on the bottom. That's um, just kind of like an island off of the island. But anyway, those are mentioned there. And then uh, I think we go to 12 and 13. Yeah, go to verse 12. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also if by any means they might attain to Phoenicia and there to winter. And of course... Uh, that's another name for Phoenix on the, on the left. Phoenicia is also that Phoenix. Um, and lie toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew slowly, or excuse me, softly, supposing they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. So um, this is where um, they're about to get actually into a shipwreck in the next few verses as Paul is there traveling by that island of Crete. So... Um, we see that um, Titus lived on that Greek island. That's where he was a pastor, and that's where, where Paul told him to ordain, to ordain uh, pastors there. And then we said, we looked already, took our time to look at chapter 2, the hope for future generations, teaching and discipling them, uh, do it by word and example, 
And of course, when you do it, you're swimming upstream these days. I mean, we live in a society, a culture that's completely opposite of what we saw in Titus 2, verse 1 to 8. And uh, yet that's, you know, that's in Scripture. That's what Paul told Titus to do and to teach to, to his people. And um, yeah, mileage and efficiency. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11. Grace, we're saved by grace. The same grace that saves us sustains us every day. And Paul found out through that thorn in the flesh that he had that God's grace was sufficient for every need of his life, and it is for every need of our life. And so grace is free. Freddie preached a great message on that Sunday morning. And if you uh, didn't get a chance to hear it or if you go on our podcast, I apologize. I don't know what happened to this recorder. It somehow stopped before he finished. I don't know. I don't think the battery went out, but I don't know if something got bumped. I don't know what happened, but um, it only had like 25 minutes of the message, then it cut off. So I apologize for that. I don't know, I don't know what happened. He was wearing wearing the MP3 player, but it didn't. It got through a good bit of it, but not through the whole message. But he preached a great message and talked about you know free grace uh, and salvation Sunday morning. Uh, did a great job with that. But let's look at um, a little bit more about grace. Now, this is for the believer. After we've trusted Christ, this is for the believer. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2, and we'll read down to verse 15. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, and we're saved by grace through faith, hath appeared to all men... But it teaches us something. Once we're saved, this is what grace teaches us. Teaches, uh, uh, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus, that's verse 2 and 11, and that's on the slide up there I have. Um, the grace of God has appeared to all men. And then it teaches us these things. Um, continue on verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. I didn't read this verse earlier, but this one's also about good works. Zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So verse 11 to 15, he tells us what grace teaches us. It teaches us on the negative to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. But on the positive, it also says um, to, that we should live righteous, soberly, righteous, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the negative is denying what is ungodly. The positive is to live godly. And so uh, it teaches us that. God's grace that saves us is the grace that, that empowers us and equips us to live the Christian life day by day. And then it also teaches us to look for the rapture, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And then verse 14, it, it teaches us that we're to be zealous. When you have a zeal for something, you're, you're excited about it. Like a, you know, like a football fan in football season, you're excited about it. You're zealous for it. It's something you, you uh, get all excited about. You, you, it's on your mind. You get worked up about it. And so that's the way the believer should be about good works for the Lord after, after we're saved. Go back on the scenic route. Here are twin verses right here. Look at Titus 3, verse 5. I quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 a minute ago. Look at Titus 3, verse number 5. Uh, not of, by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Chapter, uh, Ephesians tells us we're saved by grace through faith, and Titus tells us we're saved by His mercy. We're saved by both. 
Grace is where God withholds from us, uh, or excuse me, grace is where God gives to us what we do not deserve. We don't deserve His grace. We don't deserve His righteousness. Mercy is where God withholds from us what we do deserve. We do deserve judgment. We do deserve an eternity in a horrible place called hell, but grace and mercy both met together at the cross where God gives us what we don't deserve and He withholds from us what we deserve. And so those are twin verses. They go great together um, that talk about how He saves us and has saved us. And then it says in verse 6 of Titus 3, 5, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right, so the tune-up we look at each time, depending on the length of the book, sometimes there are several of those, but I just had one in here for Titus, and uh, that is the blessed hope, to look forward to our Lord's return for His church, the rapture, chapter 2, verse 13, that blessed hope. And then uh, in Titus, um, one, one, um, one title for Jesus that's found in almost all of Paul's writings and that is in verse 4, where he says, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so um, he has that one title for Jesus there. In some books he has more than one, and uh, that's the one in Titus. And then here's some great verses to memorize. Look at chapter 1. We read a moment ago, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Aren't you glad he can't lie? There's a lot of things God can do. He can do a lot more than we can, but there's some things he can't do, and I'm glad. One of them is he can't lie, and he would never lie. He wouldn't lie. That's why we have the hope of eternal life. It's a hope that we look forward to one day being in his presence. Um, but we have eternal life now if we've trusted him as Savior. So he cannot lie. God cannot, and he would not lie and mislead us. His word is true. Verse 9, and this is um, what Paul told Titus to not just himself, but pastors, but really it's something we're, we're all to do. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Uh, great, great word, uh, great verse to uh, memorize. And then we looked at chapter 2, verse 14 a while ago, to be zealous of good works. And then 3, verse 5 and 6, uh, so it tells us it's not by works of righteousness but that he saved us, okay? All right. Any questions or anything on Titus before we go to Philemon tonight? Input or questions or anything? Anybody have? There's a lot in three chapters, isn't there? Just like with uh, both the Timothy letters. All right, Philemon's just a short chapter, uh, book of one chapter. And in Philemon, the key, the emphasis of Philemon is forgiveness exemplified. It shows an example of, of one uh, that is to forgive another. There's only one chapter, and it's only 25 verses. It's not a long book at all. And so um, because of Titus being three chapters and it's, Hebrews is longer, so I um, just wanted to go ahead and put that in for tonight with this one instead of including with Hebrews because when we get there, it's, it's a good bit in Hebrews. It's 13 chapters. But it's one chapter, 25 verses in the book of Philemon. And it was written the same time roughly as Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. When Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel in, in Rome, um, his, uh, he wrote this. This is one of what, what is called one of his prison epistles because it was written while he was in prison. Same time roughly as Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And some of the... Uh, 
Some of the people he mentions at the end in the last couple of verses, uh, they're found in those other letters too as he writes uh, to, these, to, to these other places. So this is written to a person rather than a church. And here is uh, how, how we break this down. It's only one chapter, and it goes back and forth, so it's not like you go so many verses on one, so many on another, because it goes back and forth. Philemon exemplifies God the Father. He, uh, he is an example of how God is uh, the one who can forgive, and on a human level, Philemon is... Uh, is, he's, he's written, a letter is written from Paul to him to forgive this man Onesimus. We'll get to him in just a moment. To forgive him for the way he wronged Philemon. And so, um, you know, we're, we're forgiven through God's son, Jesus Christ. So Philemon is an example. He exemplifies God the Father and that he's the one that, that forgives. We're forgiven through Christ. Onesimus exemplifies us as a, as a sinner that's saved. We, we needed forgiveness through Christ, and God forgives us, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians 4, uh, that we're forgiven uh, for Christ's sake. Our, our sins are, we're, we're forgiven for our sins for, for Christ's sake and what he did on the cross for us. And then Paul exemplifies Jesus, who points Philemon and Onesimus in the right direction. Um, he points the sinner Onesimus to his need to, to get things right with Philemon, and he talks to Philemon about, you know, the importance of, of forgiving Onesimus. Now, of course, for the Christian, God forgives us through Christ. It's not like Jesus says, hey, forgive him, Father. God forgives us. We know that. So this is putting it on a human perspective when we look at it this way. So let's take a few moments. It's not a long book. But before we break this down, I'm going to start with verse 1, since it's a short book, and read through verse 25. And then we'll go back and look at a few highlights here in Philemon. There's one place in particular I really want to suspend some time on. Chapter 1, verse 1, only one chapter. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Uh, and of course, you know, he writes two letters to Timothy. Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. So Philemon's a believer. Verse 2, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. So uh, Philemon was apparently a wealthy man because we find out that he owns a slave, a servant named Onesimus. And Philemon was a man that loved the Lord and had um, a church met in his house. Remember, they didn't have buildings, so he actually had a church meet where he lived. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. So Philemon loved the Lord. He loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, verse 6, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love. Because the bowels of that, we're going to come back to that in a moment too, why he uses that word, of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Again, this is one of his prison epistles. Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my bonds. So Paul led him to the Lord. We'll get back to this in a moment, that he led that man Onesimus to the Lord. Verse 11, uh, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, 
Thou therefore receive him that is in mine own bowels. We'll come back to that as I mentioned in just a moment, why he says that. Verse 13, whom I have retained uh, with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing. In other words, I want your input on this. I want your feedback. I want your thoughts on this. That thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever. Now, uh, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, because Paul had led him to Christ. Especially to me, and how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. We're going to spend some time on that verse in a moment. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest to me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Marcus, that's another name for Mark, also John Mark, he's called. Uh, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, that's a long version of the name Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So he writes these 25 verses in our English Bible to Philemon. And we're going to break this down a little bit and see. Philemon was a wealthy believer. In that day in the uh, Greek culture, in the Roman, Greek and Roman culture, um, usually only the wealthy had slaves or servants. And he had this slave named Onesimus. We'll come back to him in a moment. But he was a wealthy believer. Uh, we don't know how big a house that he had, how big of a house he had, but a church met in his house. However many people, uh, they met regularly in his house, according to verse number two. And then he was the owner of this man, Onesimus, who was his slave, uh, back there at verse 16, um, where it says, now as a servant, not as a servant, but above a servant. So he was, um, he was a servant to, to Philemon, and apparently he had wronged him. That's the third thing. Verse 18, if he had wronged thee or owed thee all, put that on my account. Apparently he had stolen something from him, and he ran away. He was a runaway servant. And so in those days, depending on who it was, they could have the servant punished. Sometimes it was by death that they could have a servant punished for, for running away. So Paul goes to bat for this young man, Onesimus. Philemon is a good friend to Paul. Look back at verse... Um, um, Looking back at verse 20 and 21, uh, excuse me, 21 and 22. Having confidence in thy, thy obedience, I write unto thee, uh, knowing that thou will also do more than I say. In other words, uh, I know you very well, Philemon, and I know that... You'll, you'll help this man when he comes back. But look at verse 22. But with all, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. So in other words, when they released him from prison, that time they did, when they released him from prison, that he would request to go and stay with Onesimus for a while. And, I mean, with Philemon in a while, in his home, in his house. And so um, they evidently knew each other very well, trusted each other. Uh, and as we'll, from what we can see... Um, in fact, look at verse, um, verse 19. Paul have written it with my own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self. Besides, um, Paul most likely had led Philemon to the Lord too. 
And so now he's in prison. Somehow he comes across this man named Onesimus that had run away from Philemon. Maybe Onesimus went looking for Paul after he ran away. And so whatever, whatever reason, however he found him, he led him to Christ uh, and calls him a brother there. And he says, look, Philemon, he's not only your servant, but welcome him back now because he's a brother. He's another believer. So in that day, in that culture, you know, believers, they unfortunately had to hide a lot um, uh, to worship. That's why they met in the house um, because of persecution. They would hide, you know, and have a place of private where they could worship. And so um, here's Onesimus. Now he's a believer. And so he's also, just like Philemon, even though he's his servant, they're both brothers in the Lord now. So when it comes to that, even though Philemon was wealthy, being a servant, Onesimus wasn't, they're brothers in the Lord. They're now the same in Christ, no matter uh, you know, what their position was. Paul says over in uh, Colossians, he says, there's neither bond nor free. We're one in Christ. If we know Christ as Savior, we're one in Christ. And this is an example of how that's very true. So he, but he was wrong by it. Uh, Onesimus probably took something that wasn't his and just left and, and ran out. He was a slave. As I mentioned, Paul led him to Christ. And he was once unprofitable. Let's look back at verse 11 again. Which was, uh, excuse me, which in time past was to the unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. And what he's telling him is, look, he's a brother in Christ now. And, and I've, I've, I know that he's been saved. Verse 10 says, whom I have begotten in my bonds. That means basically he led him to Christ there, uh, even while Paul was a prisoner. So he says he was, you know, it, it was once unprofitable, but now he's returned as a brother in Christ. And so Paul, here's an imprisoned preacher. He was in prison on the behalf of the gospel. We saw that in verse number 10, his bonds. But he vouches for him. We already read those verses 11 and 12. He vouched for him when he wrote this letter to Philemon. Very short letter, to the point, and he vouched for him. He's a believer now. And then he reminded Philemon of his debt. Look, Philemon, you owe me your own self. I, I led you to Christ, and, and it's because of that that, you, you know, that you're saved. So he wasn't patting himself on the back. He wanted Philemon to see what he once was and what he is now. Same thing happened to Onesimus. He's a believer. Same is true for you and me. It doesn't matter where we are in life. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are. It doesn't matter where we live, how rich or poor. Um, there are believers, I really believe, that there are believers over in countries, third world countries. They know Christ as Savior. They might not know where their next meal is, but some of them are probably spiritually better off than a lot of us Americans because they don't have anything, so they look to the Lord. Sometimes because we have a lot, we think, well, you know, we'll get by... But we need the Lord just like they need him, and, and they really rely on him, and God blesses them. And some of them are probably closer to the Lord than we are, maybe that some of us will ever, ever be, because they rely on the Lord all the time. And sometimes we get kind of a place in our life where, you know, we, we can get by, we can do it on our own, we forget how much we need the Lord. So he uses that word bowels and, um, in those verses. We've read them, so I won't read them again, but hold your place and go back to Colossians. A few books to your left. You'll pass the, the Titus and the two Timothy letters, and then you'll get back uh, a couple of books there. You'll get to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And he uses it in verse 12. I'll read this verse, and then we'll look at the definition. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Bowels is an old English word that was used back then. Today we use the word heart or the innermost being. 
But for them, they used that word because it was a seat. It was the seat of pity, the place of pity, the place of kindness. So it would be tenderness and compassion that they would feel away from the inner depths of their heart. The word heart, of course, is used in the Bible, but bowels, when it's used there, when Paul uses that especially, it means deeper inside. It means what you feel way down inside of you. And so we use the word heart more than we would that word, but it's the same thing. It means way down in our innermost being. And so he uses it three times in, um, in the book of uh, Philemon there. It's found in uh, Colossians and a couple other places too. But he uses that word as the very inner depths inside of him, uh, the deepest feelings uh, within a person. Okay, so this is what I'll spend a little time on. We've got a few more minutes. Spend a little more time on before we close tonight. Look at verse 18 again. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee all. And of course he had, because he'd stolen from him most likely. Verse, look at the rest of verse 18. Put that on mine account. We would say today something like, charge that to me. Charge it, uh, put it on my account, and when the tab comes, I'll pay it. Whatever it is. Um, it's wide open. If there's a charge, if he could sit down and think about, okay, no, Onesimus cost me this, he stole this object. And look at all the time he hasn't been serving me since he's run away. So he'd make a list of how much he owed, and he would give it to Paul. Paul says, give that to me. Put it on my account. Take what is owed on him, owed on his credit card, and I will debit it out for him. I'll pay for that. I'll pay for it. Put it on my account. This verse here... One of the reasons this is so beautiful in the book of Philemon when it's about a slave and an a owner and, and a, a, a preacher that's in prison trying to write a letter to, to get that relationship, that relationship straightened out. He Right there, he gives a verse that describes what we call the biblical doctrine of imputation. There are a lot of T-I-O-Ns in uh, the New Testament that are great studies. Salvation, justification, which is which is uh, uh, where God declares a believing sinner righteous when we trust in Christ. Sanctification, that's a daily walk where the Lord's making us more like His Son every day. Sanctification, drawing us closer to Him. Uh, glorification, one day we'll get a glorified body. And this is another one of them. It's the word imputation. And it simply means that same thing, to place something to someone's account. It's... Um, it's a, a Bible word that's found in several places. Go with me to Romans and we'll see how it applies in our salvation. Romans chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, and then we're going to skip down a little further in the same chapter. This is a chapter where um, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about how Abraham is justified by faith. He's saved by faith um, uh, because he believed God. And so Paul takes... Abraham's example, and says that's exactly the way we're saved is by faith. Not by works, not by promising God we're going to do this or that, but by faith, by believing Him, by trusting Him. Look at verse 1 through 8 of, of uh, Romans chapter 4. What shall I say then that Abraham our fathers pertaining to the flesh hath found? If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. In other words, uh, if he was justified, if God declared him righteous because of his works, then he could, he could glory and rejoice himself, but not in God. But we know that's not the way we're justified, not the way we're saved. Verse 3, for what saith the Scripture? Now he's quoting from Genesis uh, 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. 
Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him to justify the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We're going to read through verse 8, and twice we see that word impute. Look at verse 6. Even as David also described the blessings of the man, he quotes from uh, Psalm 32, under the man in whom God imputeth righteousness, places it to their account, imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So the doctrine of imputation where, where he declares us you know, righteous through faith in Christ to place something to some, someone else's account, what he does when we put our faith in Christ, he no longer sees the sin debt upon us. Why? Because when we trust Christ as Savior, that sin debt was placed on him at Calvary's cross, and we have believed on that. We placed our faith in him that he took our sins, but this is only half of it. He took our sins upon himself. So that's the Bible doctrine of imputation. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 22. We'll see the, uh, see the other half of it. I jumped the gun there. Chapter 4, verse 22. And therefore, it was talking about Abraham, that he believed God. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So... Um, Verse 8 talks about the Lord, whom the Lord does not impute sin. That is, he doesn't hold sin any longer to our account. But he did impute righteousness. He put that on our account. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believed on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So when Paul says to Philemon, Anything that Onesimus owes you, put it on my bill. Put it on my tab. I'm going to pay it. He owed it. It was still something Onesimus owed. But when it was put on Paul's account, it was as good as paid. When we trust Christ as Savior, our sins are paid for. They've been paid for when we down the cross, but they're paid for in the realization that we're now saved because we've trusted in Him. And so... God took our sin, placed it on His Son. Blesses the man in whom the Lord does not impute sin because He put it on His Son. He placed Christ's righteousness into our spiritual account. One of my favorite verses, go to 2 Corinthians. We're getting ready to close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And this puts it in one verse, basically, even though He doesn't use the word impute. This is, the, uh, this is what He did. And what imputation, what it means to impute something. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, for you and me, who knew no sin. Jesus didn't know any sin. That we, you and I, might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that's what he did on the cross. He imputed that. He placed that to our spiritual account. So... He justified us. He declared us righteous. The minute we trust in Christ, our guilt was placed on the cro- uh, Jesus on the cross way back nearly 2,000 years ago. But as soon as a person trusts Christ in 2024 or whenever you trust Christ, trusted Christ, God's very righteousness was placed on you as a believer. 
So we see our guilt was given to Jesus. Christ's righteousness is given to us. That's salvation. That's justification. That's imputation, where he places that to our spiritual account. So as believers in Christ, before we know Christ as Savior, spiritually, we're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer him. That's why we can't turn from enough sin. We can't be sorry enough for sin. We, there's no way we could do enough of that to, to get the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We believe. Now, if you're sorry, that's great. You should be sorry. That's wonderful if you feel sorry. But that's not the requirement for salvation. It's believing on Christ because he gives us that. See, there is not anything we do other than believe what he did. And so he imputes that and places that to our very account, our spiritual account. We are declared righteous because now we have the righteousness of Christ. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not impute sin, and then he hath made sin, uh, made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I love that. I love that. He calls himself, verse 9, Paul the aged. So as we grow older, we should grow in grace. Paul did, and uh, he... he um, he, he was growing in grace, and he calls himself in verse 9, Paul the aged. Over in 1 John, Paul, uh, chapter 2, I think it is. I didn't write down the reference. John writes to the believers and says, um, those who are, are fathers teach, you know, um, uh, those who are fathers in the faith. In other words, they've grown, you know, matured in the faith. Then there are those that he calls children in the faith. They're, they're younger believers. And so Paul calls himself Paul the aged because not only was he older, um, as far as the calendar goes, his birthdays go, but he was older, he had grown in grace, and he knew what forgiveness was about. And he, he encouraged Philemon to be a man of forgiveness. Verse 3, Jesus is called the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 25, when he closes out the letter, Paul calls him our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, from after the book of Acts, he's called Lord Jesus Christ because those are written after, of course, Jesus had risen from the dead. Now he's called Lord uh, officially in, all, in Paul's writings especially. Uh, some home address, some verses to, to uh, they're great to memorize. Verse 4 uh, is a great verse about praying for the believers. It's not, um, it's not a long verse. He, he, when he writes to Philemon, he says, I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. And then verse 6, we've talked about this several time in Paul's letter, times in Paul's letters in the last few months since we've been in the epistles of Paul. That the, that the communication, we, we talked about how communication, we use it now to mean pretty much just the words we say or communicating over the phone or text and words. But communication then was not only used for the words you said, but the way you lived your life. That the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which uh, is in you in Christ Jesus. So those are good verses uh, to memorize from the book of Philemon. All right, any questions or anything on Philemon? Short book, but it's packed, really, with a lot of stuff in it, especially that verse about uh, charge, uh, uh, put it in my account. That's great about uh, that beautiful doctrine of imputation. All right, we'll stop there tonight. Any questions or anything? Lord willing, weather permitting, we don't have snow or something, we'll uh, be in Hebrews, Lord willing, next week. It's 13 chapters, where it's a lot to put in one night, but if you want to read ahead, uh, maybe you'll see some places in there you might want to, uh, might have some questions about or make some comment about next week when we study it. All right, let's stand and close in prayer, and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the time to study it tonight and uh, what you showed us tonight in Titus and also in the book of Philemon. We thank you for our great Savior. We know that 
Salvation is not of us. Lord, We our part is to believe Jesus did everything that had to be done and needed to be done because He died on the cross in our place, shed His precious blood that we can have eternal life in Him and in Him alone. I thank You for eternal life in Your Son. And uh, Lord, I pray that You'll encourage us in the Word as we continue on our Wednesday night studies in the weeks to come and uh, continue cruising through uh, Your Word. Pray that You'll watch over us as we leave here tonight and keep us safe. As we head back home, Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.